Well, that verse there has been our, our uh, theme verse, and it's kind of been the title of our series, and so we're actually going to walk through that text this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn with me this morning to Colossians chapter 2 as we continue our series called Rooted uh, in the book of Colossians. God is really uh, blessing that church. How do you know? Because they are really growing. And I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation with someone, or maybe you've had a conversation, you've heard someone say that, oh, God's really blessing that church. Well, how, how do you know that? Because lots of people are showing up and, and the church is really growing and attendance is swelling. And I've had people uh, make that comment about our church in the last uh, couple of years, and I'm grateful for the compliments. Uh, but I want to do, it's important to understand this morning, that attendance is not, I repeat, is not the benchmark for spiritual success in God's church. It's not the goal. It should never be the motive. And we should obey God and leave the results to Him. And so uh, there can be churches that can be growing that God is blessing. And there are churches that are growing by uh, manipulation and dog and pony shows and all kinds of things. Uh, So attendance is not the benchmark of spiritual success. And the reason I know that attendance alone is not what does it for the heart of God is this. If that were true, then hear me then every Sunday in the fall, God would look down at Paul Brown Stadium and his heart would swell up with pride, okay? That's all that God was looking for. But we know that's not true. That doesn't happen because God hates nothing more than the sin of losing. And so I just want to throw that out there. And so put your stones up, you Bengals fans. I just have to remind myself that not every team has the dominance of the UK men's basketball program. And so I'm just going to extend some grace. Can Can I get a witness this morning? And so while it's easy for us to agree with that and understand that God's not impressed by thousands and thousands of people gathering together uh, for a sporting event, we also have to remind ourselves that God's not also not impressed with, with lots of people gathering together where Jesus' name gets mentioned every now and then or some Bible verses uh, get sprinkled in. So when it comes to God, it's doing things the right way, not just getting the right results that pleases the heart of God. Paul uses a, a great analogy often in the Scriptures of a church He describes it like a body. And he talks about the body and how it's interrelated and interconnected and how the body grows and thrives and is dependent. And uh, do you realize this, though, if growth alone is the the key indicator of the body? Do you realize this, that in in, in the medical world, that one of the fastest growing cells are certain types of cancer cells, but we would never look at someone with visible tumors and say, isn't that great? Growth is really taking place. Now, the reason we would never say that is because the goal is not growth. The goal is health. And can I hear this morning that the same is true in God's body, the church, that the goal is not growth. The goal is health for the glory of God, leaving the results in his hands. And so we're looking this morning in Colossians chapter two, and it's a tangible reminder that we're to attend to the depth of our church and let God take care of the width is exactly the plan that God has laid out. And uh, we don't have to look any further. Some people want to debate that and say, I don't know, I, I think the attendance is, it is the benchmark. Well, listen, if you look at the ministry of Jesus and attendance is the benchmark, then Jesus was a colossal failure. Because the Bible says he had a very small following. As a matter of fact, uh, we read in John chapter 6 that he would uh, gather a following. He would lay down the gauntlet of what it really looked like to follow him. And John chapter 6 uh, says from that time forward, uh, many walked away and followed him no more. And so the goal in God's eyes is not how many people are getting in the building on the weekend. The goal in God's eyes is how many lives are being changed for the glory of God. And so how does that relate to our church? Well, I want to preach a message this morning entitled this uh, simply, Are We There Yet? And how can we look at Liberty Heights Church in this place that we call home 
and God's church here. And how do we how do we know what's the scorecard when we can finally look and say, hey, God's done some great things and God's been breathing new life into our church and God's been doing the work of restoration. But how do we know when we say when we finally can rest and say we're there, we've totally arrived. And so the question is, are we there yet? Is it when we reach a certain attendance goal? Is it when we transition to two services? Is it when we reach a certain debt reduction mark? Then finally we can say, are we there yet? And so uh, I want to thrilled that you've asked that question this morning, okay? Because in Colossians chapter 2, he gives a little insight of what it looks like when you get there. If you're asking the question, how do we know, are we there yet? Well, he's going to walk through this in Colossians chapter 2 and define what it looks like when a church gets there, Okay? Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we're going to look down through uh, verse 7 this morning. He says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you in those in Laodicea, and for as many have not seen, me, seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That, that's, that's a mouthful right there, is it not? He says in verse 4, Now this I say, or here's my motive. Now this I say, there's those cattle again. <laughs> so you have no idea what I'm talking about. Hey, now this I say, inside joke, between me and a hundred of my closest friends. Hey, now this I say, verse 4, lest anyone should deceive you with per- persuasive words, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Here's our key verse for this whole series. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now here in verse 1, as we walk through this passage, verse 1 is pretty much introductory. And so Paul says, listen, I'm in agony, I'm in inner turmoil because he's he's never seen these people face to face. If you remember back and you were with us at the beginning of the series, we know that uh, Paul was never in Colossae. He didn't start this church. Uh, Paul, most historians would say, was preaching in the region known as Asia Minor. There was a guy, a no name in Scripture, named Epaphras. And Epaphras was in Asia Minor. He came to Christ under Paul's ministry there, went back into his city, Colossae, and uh, began to tell people about Jesus and, and began to catalyst we're starting that local church. And so uh, Paul's writing from prison. He's never seen these people face to face. They only know of him through his writings and teachings and his ministry before. And so that's why his writing says, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm heartbroken. There is inner agony inside of me. I wish that I was there. Uh, I wish that I knew some of you. I wish that I could see you face to face. Because if I was there face to face, there are some things burning in my heart that I want to see happen in your church there that I would just love to tell you so you can see how passionate I am for what I want your church to become as kind of a spiritual father in the ministry of them. Well, here's the good news. The same things that Paul wanted for that church there that we're reading about here, that he's agonizing over, that he's saying, oh, I just wish I could be there to tell you, are the exact same things that God wants for Liberty Heights Church. So this passage is incredibly relevant. And Paul begins to walk through this passage and uh, list some benchmarks of what it looks and what we should be striving for in a church. And so as he begins to enumerate and list out these things, we find off in this text here that the church that brings God glory is, is this. First off, is a church that is encouraging each other through loving unity. It is a place where people come in 
And they're encouraged because everybody's in one mind and one accord. Now, let me tell you this. The thing that will never unite a church is personalities. Look around the room. Just take a scan this morning. There's some weird people in here, all right? And I'm one of them. And so if everybody's personality was just like mine, then we're in a lot of trouble. And so it's not about a common personality or a common uh, viewpoint on every minor doctrine. It's all we're going all in the same direction, striving so that the glory of God would be manifest, that the presence of Christ would be made manifest when we gather together. That's unity. And so he says, that's exactly what I want for your church. Look what he says here. Again, look at verse 2. He says in verse 1, I wish I could be there. You've not seen me, but my heart still beats for you against co-labors in the gospel. Then verse 2, he says that their hearts may be encouraged. Now, in the English, uh, our Bible, there's a comma there, like there's a, a break in thought. But in the original Greek, there's, there's no break in thought. It's one sentence, one phrase, one theme. He says that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. The Greek text uh, translates this way, your hearts being knit together in love, that you may be encouraged since you are knit together in love. And the word encouraged there is the same word that we see exhorted or coming alongside. Or I, I hope there's this culture in your church that where it's just so encouraging because there's an incredible sense of unity. Now, if we're not careful, those who, who relish the script, I mean, who treasure the scriptures, we can come back and we can look and say, hey, this is just a curriculum and the goal is to get as many facts as you can and the pursuit of Christ and everything we do together is just an academic pursuit and get all the knowledge that we can. And if we do that, then we forget that the pulsating, resounding heartbeat of Christianity is sacrificial love as modeled by Jesus Christ. And so Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians reminding us that, hey, it's, it's not truth, it's truth and love. He said this, he says, though I speak with the tongues of angels and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it has no benefit to me. And that's the Apostle Paul writing. And he's saying, if I attain this level of spirituality and I, and I give my life to serving the poor and I do all those things, but I've never captured the heart of Christianity, which is sacrificial and can, unconditional love, then I have nothing. It's a bit a total waste of time. God doesn't look down at my life and go, hey, good job. Well, I'm well pleased. And so all that theology and all that knowledge, and all that desire for truth is a good thing, but the balance is love. Now, let me tell you a, a person that can get off the rails and do some damage. It's a person who gets real excited about truth and who has a real low tolerance for love. You've been around those people? Aren't they encouraging? They, they, they don't listen. The Word of God is not, not a love man. It doesn't transform their hearts. It's a club to beat the tar out of people, right? It's just they come along and I'm going to memorize this so that I can bully other people with my knowledge of the Word of God. Paul says, hey, if that's the motive, if that's the goal, you're like a clanging symbol if you have not love. You are nothing. So he says, I want this culture to be in your church. That there's an encouragement because there's unity that's driven and motivated by love. Look at verse 2 again. He used an interesting word there. In verse 2 he says, that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Now the word knit together, that phrase, it just simply means united. Here's the picture that he's painting. He says, in the church that brings God glory, there is such a spirit of unity there. It's so encouraging because it's, a matter of fact, they're so unified that they've been knit together where the individual parts are no longer recognizable. It just seems one body moving in one direction for one purpose, which is the glory of God. But I can tell you that in 11 years of ministry, 
Uh, there are some folks who aren't real interested in being knit together. There are some folks who aren't real interested in blending in. There are some folks who want to stand out and share everything. What's that old, the squeaky wheel? And I've pastored some squeaky wheels in the last ten years. And so the, the idea here is that I'm just, you know what, it's not about me. It's not about my, my ministry and my preferences and my agenda and my pet doctrines and my, you know, my, my interpretation of some secondary doctrine. No, it's about me coming together in the body, being knit together in such a way that I'm just one of the parts moving in the direction for the glory of God and extending the Great Commission in my community. He says, that's what it should look like. But can we get honest this morning? It don't always work that way, does it? It doesn't, listen, you get hundreds of sinners in the same room and there's the potential for a train wreck. There's the potential for anybody in this room to get out of whack and start to try and steer the ship in the wrong direction and try to get, get on some tangent or some kind of thing and start to push the thing in the wrong direction. Here's what I found. You don't have to work hard at disunity. It just happens. I've never sat down and said in our staff meetings and said, you know what, things are going well. Uh, let's plan how we can, we can start to shake this thing up. Now, there's a joke. It is on our staff. Uh, our staff is unified. We've got a great staff, and so uh, we're, we're unified. We want the same things. We're doing things the same way, same philosophy of ministry. And every now and then I, I tell them in some staff environment, I say, you know what, it's gotten a little boring around here. It's time for me to bring some dysfunction in here, right? But it's not hard. It, we, we gravitate towards that. And so the body of Christ, there's always this idea, and and here's the sad thing, that positionally we are one in Jesus Christ, but practically we have a hard time getting the, the train to go down the track in the same direction. We're one in Christ positionally, but practically it doesn't take a whole lot to get the train off the trail. Now the reason we do that is because of this. It's because if we're not careful, we can come to the place where we love our opinions, and our thoughts and ourselves so much that the goal becomes being right instead of being reconciled. You know why when you get dysfunction in your marriage that it's hard to resolve? It's because pride swells up inside of you and all of a sudden becoming right becomes a lot more important than being reconciled. The same thing happens in the church. If you've ever read the book of Ephesians, You'll know that Ephesians is actually kind of a, a parallel book with the book of Colossians. And when we get later in the book of Colossians, you'll hear some things. Hey, I've heard that before. That's, that's somewhere else in the Bible. It's in the book of Ephesians. These are kind of parallel truths. And so listen to this parallel truth on this principle of unity in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 says this, Endeavoring to keep or guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let me, let me read that again. Endeavoring to keep or guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I wasn't exactly sure what that looked like. So I began to searching and digging into the text and looking through commentaries. And, and listen to what John MacArthur's commentary. This is great insight of what's required for that to actually happen, where there is a unity of the Spirit and there's a bond of peace. Here's what he says. He says, unity has already been created by the Spirit. We're already one positionally in Jesus Christ. So it's not about creating unity. It's about guarding the unity that we already have in Jesus Christ. He said, but the key to that is being a peacemaker. The key to that is love. He says, love binds everything perfectly together. And the bond of peace is love. Listen to this. Love is built on humility and humility has 
of its consequences, acts of self-service. Then he makes this great closing statement. Here's what he said. He said, the last time you sacrificed anything to meet anybody else's need is the last time you loved. This is a great truth. And so what happens in conflict is this. It's that I desperately want to be right. I desperately want to be affirmed in my passions and my opinions and my pet doctrines. And it's so overwhelming inside of me that the motivation is being right and not being reconciled. And when I want to be right at all costs, then I'm no longer willing to self-sacrifice as an act of humility. And all of a sudden, dysfunction junction sets in in the body of Christ. And so Paul's desires for the church is there's this encouraging uh, culture of unity. And how is that achieved? Through love that consistently sacrifices on behalf of someone else. Now, why is that so encouraging? It's because this place should be a refuge. Amen? It, it, we live in a, in a difficult, sin-cursed world. There is brokenness all around us. You don't have to turn uh, too far to realize there is dysfunction and brokenness and heartache everywhere. And what you should experience when you come into this place is it's a place of refuge where you can push all those distractions to the side and the vertical attention that God gets alone in this place shouldn't be distracted. But can we get honest? And there's nothing more discouraging than a church that's fighting. Amen? And walking through that and people that you've loved and you've prayed and you've served with and you've, you've grieved over losses in each other's lives, all of a sudden you start to rise up and it's what the psalmist said in the Psalms when he said, my brother whom I broke bread with has risen up to slay me. This is basic Christianity 101, self-sacrificing, putting the needs of other people uh, in an effort for, uh, as an overflow of humility for the effort of unity. And Paul said, that's what I want every church to look like. And I've shared with you before uh, that, that in a few weeks, uh, Tasha and I have been married 14 years in a few weeks. And all that time, in 14 years, uh, we have not had one fight. We have had a few intense moments of fellowship, as we like to call those. And do you know what has caused those intense moments of fellowship? One word. Tasha. That is totally not true. I'm just preaching a little bit, all right? What has caused those is that one of us, and most of the time, most of the time me, wasn't really interested in self-sacrifice and the natural result of that is disunity because I was more interested in being right than I was in being reconciled. And the same thing that happens in a marriage is the same thing that happens in the bride of Christ or the church. Let me prove you how crucial unity is. Now, I just Googled uh, uh, church disunity statistics. And I just thought, is this a big deal? Does it happen to some churches? Is it a big deal? I mean, do we need to preach on unity? Is it, you know, is it something we need to address? Uh, let me just, uh, some of the things that came up in my search. Studies indicate there are about 19,000 major scarring church conflicts in the U.S. each year, an average of 50 per day. 1,500 pastors leave their pastor in the U.S., each month, the number one cause is moral failure, but numbers two and three are burnout and conflict. Carl Dudley wrote a book called Conflict. <laughs> it's a great title. Conflict, synonym for congregation. 
And he said 25% of churches in one survey reported conflict in the previous five years that was serious enough to have lasting impact on congregational life. George Barner, a Christian researcher, uh, reported this. He said, because of conflict, the average pastoral career lasts only 14 years, less than half of what it was just decades ago. Church Conflict Forum said this, 2% of church conflict was over doctrinal issues, 98% was over interpersonal issues. 2% of the time it was an issue of truth, 98% of the time it was an issue of, I just don't like you and I'm leaving. What do churches split over? I wrote some things down. One church split over a piano bench. Listen, do you think when Christ was on the cross, did He ever thought, I hope they get it right when it comes to the piano bench? But a church split over a piano bench. But they were able to resolve it later. But then here's how. By going to two services where the piano bench was... The piano bench was taken outside for one service and dragged back into the church for the next service, and then everyone was happy and unified. One church split over the spelling of the word hallelujah. Now, I'm not worried about that in a Baptist church because we're scared to say that. It just feels Pentecostal, does it not? Another church split over whether a certain Hebrew letter was pronounced wa or va. They just, they just couldn't reconcile, right? You know what happened in that situation? Someone was a lot more interested in being right than they were in being reconciled for the glory of God. It's pretty safe to say that those churches that didn't quite come to this passage and say, oh, we're knit together so much to the point that, that you don't even see the individual parts. It's just one whole body moving in one direction with the sole motive of not being right, the sole motive of spreading the fame of Jesus Christ in our community. We love ourselves more than the other person, and so being right becomes more important than being reconciled. Now, this is just my conviction. It's totally my opinion that if we don't get this thing right about church unity, then guess what? It thwarts our efforts to reach people for Christ. Because here's my conviction. People shouldn't have to come to church to experience a fight. I mean, we've got families for that. Amen? Listen, I just want to stay. I've got four kids. If I want to stay home and argue with someone, I stay home. And so here's a key question, and we're just going to move on, and we'll, we'll never get to this passage. Here's a key question. Is it ever right to fight? And I'm going to say yes on two occasions. Number one, if sin is not being dealt with, and it's not being held accountable, and there's obvious uh, sin, and people are doing things uh, in a way that doesn't honor God, and no one's holding that accountable, or that's not being repented of, then guess what? You just stand your ground or, or, or go on. So there's the time that you should take a hard stand. It's a loving stand, but it's a hard stand. And the other time is this. The other time is this is that when the Word of God's not being handled with accuracy. You see, the Bible never teaches peace at all costs. What the Word of God teaches is truth at all costs. And so if someone's not teaching the Word of God, or they're teaching heresy, not being faithful to the authority of Scripture, then guess what? That's the time to firmly but lovingly stand your ground or walk away and say, I can't support what's going on here anymore. But overall, other than those exceptions, guess what? The heartbeat of God is this is that there would be an encouraging spirit of loving together, being knit together where the individual parts are like one body moving together in the same direction, all for the glory of God. And being right, hear me, being right is not nearly as important as it is being reconciled. And so what else? The church that brings glory to God is filled with people who are knit together, but it's also filled with people who are growing deeper doctrinally. 
Now, somewhere along the way, the word doctrine has kind of taken on a negative connotation. It just it becomes a word that uh, because it just you know it's just dry doctrine, just you know being dogma or those kind of things. And I understand that that out in the, in the culture outside the church, that doctrine is not an exciting word uh, because they associate doctrine with just dogma and just you know all those kind of things being harsh and and different things. And dogma is not something that's very popular in our politically correct culture. But what I don't understand is that within the church and the body of Christ, how we don't get stirred up about learning the deep truths of God's Word. And that when preaching, all the preaching is is this. It's theology on fire applied to daily life. That's what preaching should be. And so the goal that when you come to a church is this. And I've had people visit churches that I've pastored. And they said, oh, we, we, you know, we, 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 love, the, we love the preaching. I said, I can appreciate that. <laughs> That's a joke, all right? And they say, oh, we, we like this, or, or, but, but we're looking for this right here. Or we're looking for this or those kind of things. Certain youth group or certain music style or certain children's ministry. Let, let me tell you the best youth ministry I've ever seen in, in 10 years of ministry, all right? Here's the best youth, youth ministry. It's when two parents are sitting under faithful teaching of the Word of God. They get on fire for God's truth and they pour into their kids' lives. Let me tell you, the best children's ministry is when you've got two parents who love Jesus Christ with all their hearts and they're sitting under the faithful teaching of God's Word and they're submissive to the authority of Jesus Christ and they model that in their home that we follow God's rules. That's the best children's ministry you'll ever find in a church. And so when you come to a church, the goal is not this, how do I feel when I leave? The goal is this, is that I experience truth today. That I encountered Jesus Christ through the truth of what we sang and the truth of what was preached from God's Word. And so Paul begins his heart, it just beats for them. Just beats for them that they would grow deeper in the Word of God. They would be rooted and build up. And we'll look at those passages. It's going to give a warning here in just a little bit. Let me tell you what, what's happened, though, in the church culture in the last several years is this. What's happened is this. We've made attendance the benchmark. And so we've said, let's, let's gear our preaching uh, so that more people come in. And we know that it's effective if more people are coming. And so we're just going to preach felt needs. We're going to talk about relationships and self-help and some of those kind of things. And, and we're just not going to talk with doctrine because people won't come and listen uh, when the Word of God is explained like that. Let me tell you the problem with felt needs preaching. I'm just going to get on a little rant, but it actually makes, uh, applies to the text, okay? The problem with felt needs preaching is this. The motive is this. You just preach on whatever people's felt needs are, fixing their marriage, fixing their kids, fixing their finances. Me, 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 fix, fix, fix. It's about me. And as long as you do that, people will keep coming back. And if people keep coming back, then you're, you're successful. That, that's kind of whole motivation that goes on. Let me tell you the problem with that. I've never had a person one time come to me and express that their greatest felt need was repentance. But that's the one thing, according to God's Word, that changes people's hearts, which changes their lives. I've never had one person come and express to me that their greatest felt need was to learn how to better submit to the authority of Scripture. I promise you, that's the prescription for a life well lived for the glory of God, is submitting myself to the authority of Scripture. What happens today is there's so much that goes on the pulpits and there's not a lot of discernment saying, are they rightly dividing the word of truth? And we just sit back and go, well, God must be blessing it because lots and lots of people are showing up. Look what he said in chapter 2, verse 4. He said, I want you to understand, the, in verse 3, the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. He said, because in them, the deep things of God, all the treasures of wisdom of knowledge. Now, here's why. Verse 4. 
He says, now this I say, I want these things for you. This I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Now, that expression, persuasive words, refers to enticing speech and plausible arguments. Remember, he was battling the Gnostics who just kind of took all this doctrine and said, oh, let's just mix it all together and you, you, know, you can't really explain it all. You can't get a good handle on it. Just trust us. We know the deep things of God. And there was an element of truth in their teaching that was enough uh, to maybe deceive people because it was plausible arguments. He also gives a warning in, in verse 8. We'll get there next week, but I just want you to see it, though, this week. He said, beware, lest anyone teach you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And so what happened was this, is that they were teaching and people were being deceived. Why? Because there was just enough Jesus in there and just enough familiar cliches and spiritual phrases where they say, you know what? There's some things here I'm not sure about, but they're sprinkling it with Jesus and some Christian teachings, and so it must, must be okay. And so I'm just going to follow down that track with him. And Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it. Be solid in the Word. Guard your mind against deception. No, be able to discern that when someone gets up and opens the Word of God, whether or not they're handling it correctly, because that is the source of life. Satan's primary target is sowing doubts in our minds. He always goes after the minds. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Listen to this, verse 4. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Do you realize that's how Satan works? That he wants you to come to the place where your mind is deceived because he, here's what he knows. If he can get you to believe something that's not true, then those beliefs that you're holding on to that are not true will begin to drive your actions and your life will get off course incredibly quick. It's a challenge for every believer in Christ to know why they believe what they believe. The word deceived in verse 4, look at that verse 4. He said, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you. The word deceive in verse 4 is literally translated to reason beside something. And so it's something that stands beside truth, but it's, so it's next to it, so it's incredibly easy to be deceived by it. Theologian J.I. Packer gives this insight. He said, Sad experience shows that bad theology infects the heart with misbelief and unbelief, the spiritual equivalent of multiple sclerosis. Many who ran well have been progressively paralyzed through ingesting bad theology and the danger still remains for the church today. And let me show you how relevant doctrine and theology and all those things are to life. Here's what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 4. It says that the heart is the wellspring of life. Now in Scripture, when we talk about our hearts, we're talking about emotions sometimes. But in the Hebrew mind, when they wanted to talk about uh, emotions, they talked about the bowels. It's kind of like what we would say, I just have a gut feeling. I just feel it in my gut. That's what's going on. That's kind of the language they would use in the bowels. When they talked about the heart, what they were really talking about was the mind and the intellect and the will. And so in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says that the heart is the wellspring of life. What it means is this, is whatever gets in my mind will spring forth into my life. And put it as plain as I know how. When you believe correctly about the Word of God and your thoughts are, are, are driven by truth, then guess what? Your life will be easier to stay on course if you enact that truth in your life. And so what's he say? 
He says, be driven by truth. Be grounded in truth. The difference between a mature Christian and an immature one is this. You ever look at people's lives and just think, what happened? Now, I look, look in the mirror and ask that, but, but I should, right? But you look at someone's life, especially people who are in church, especially people who are in faithful Bible teaching churches, and their life gets listed. It's not, a, it's not a, an absence of correct theology or an absence of sound doctrine, but for some reason they just can't get the wheels on the track. Let me tell you my theory on that. It's this. It's because the mature person makes decisions based upon their convictions. An immature person makes decisions based upon their emotions. The mature person knows the Word of God and it drives their thoughts, which in turn drives their actions. The immature person makes decisions based upon their emotions. And it goes like this. Well, I know that's what the Bible says, but... They just make decision on decision on decision. Just like with that. And so Paul said... I want no one to be deceived with persuasive words that come alongside of the truth. Richard Foster is an author. He wrote a book. It's called Celebration of Discipline. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to get it. It's been voted one of the top ten books ever penned in Christianity on just about every list you can imagine. Incredible book. Here's what he said about this need to be deep in the Word of God and deep in the mystery of God. He said this. He said, The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people, or even gifted people, but for deep people. You know what the Apostle Paul was saying to this church in Colossians? Amen. Amen. I want you to be so rooted that when they come in and teach anything other than Jesus Christ alone is the way to life, I want you to be able to discern that and realize exactly what's taking place. And so the church that brings glory to God is marked by loving unity. The church that brings glory to God has people that are growing deeper in their knowledge of the Word of God. And lastly, the church that brings glory to God is filled with people who are following Jesus consistently in daily life. Now, what does that look like? He gives us some examples here in this passage, but I'm just going to tell you in my own mind uh, what I've kind of narrowed that on. It's this. For me as your pastor, here's what that looks like. It's when we as a church are known more for the quality of disciples we produce than we are for the building we inhabit. It's that when people say, what do you know about that huge church on the interstate? They would go, oh, that facility is phenomenal. You know what they would say? I've met some of those people. I work with them. They're my neighbors. They're some of the godliest people I've ever met in all of my life. That's what it looks like for me. That we're known more for our disciples than we are for the building that we inhabit. Here's what it looks like when the Apostle Paul began to lay out these principles. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. Now, what does that mean? Walk is just daily life. It's your lifestyle. You're doing what Jesus would do. You're following Him intimately in your daily life. And then he says that you're rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And so he begins to lay out these principles. He says, what does it look like to follow Jesus consistently? He says, first off, you're rooted and built up. What does that mean? Rooted is my position. Built up is when I practice it. The longer I obey Jesus Christ, the more I grow. It's not hard. It's not, it's not this formula kind of a thing. It's living out Acts chapter 20. He says, I commend you the word of His grace, which is able to build up. And so I'm rooted and built up. But then lastly, he says this following Jesus in daily life also, is abounding 
with thanksgiving. Look at the end of verse 7. He says you're rooted, you're positioned, you're built up, your daily practice, doing the right things over and over. And established in the faith as you've been taught. And here it is. Abounding in it with thanksgiving. You know, I've touched on that a couple times here lately. You know why? It's because I, when I study the Scriptures over and over, one of the litmus tests that the Apostle Paul used for the fruitful Christian life is a spirit of thanksgiving. It's an attitude of gratitude. And so here's the question I'd ask myself, and here's the question I would ask you this morning. If the only witness that Jesus Christ has in your circle of influence was your attitude, would people be attracted to Jesus? Would they look at your life and say, oh, the economy's been tough and everybody's going through a tough time. It's been a hard thing. They've had some tragedy going, those kind of things. But I don't know what it is about them, but there's an incredible attitude of gratitude. They just live with thanksgiving. Or they'd look at your life and your attitude and say, you know what? If, what, if Jesus is what they have, I, 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 don't, I don't want any of that. Because whatever it is that's inside of them, it hasn't produced thankfulness. It hasn't produced gratitude. It's produced complaining and being negative and all kinds of things. And I don't need any of that. I've got enough of that. One commentator said this. He said, Thanksgiving, why it's so important. He said, Thanksgiving is a visible response to the grace of God in our lives. Guys, every person in this room who's received Jesus Christ was on the path that was headed for eternal damnation and God in His grace reached down and saved us and set us on the path to righteousness. What in the world do you have to not be grateful for? What do we have to not be thankful for when we recognize that truth? So thankfulness is a visible response to the grace of God. Now, we're going to wrap up here and, and we hear this list and we say, Amen! Amen. That's what we want for our church. That's what Liberty Heights should be filled with people who are growing and encouraging and loving unity. It should be filled with people who are growing deeper in the Word of God. It should be filled with people who are living with gratitude in their daily lives as a visible witness to the grace of God. Amen. That's what should happen for our church. Guys, can I tell you this? That that will never happen at Liberty Heights corporately unless it's happening in your life individually. Because the church is not bricks and more. Listen, as great as this facility is, As nice as it is, I want you to remind yourself this morning that it's nothing more than wood walls and windows. And wood walls and windows never changed anyone's life for the glory of God. That you are the church gathered. You are the body of Christ. And it will never happen corporately until it happens personally in your life. And so the question is, are you a person that's striving for unity? Are you a peacemaker? Or are you just a peace hoper? Are you more interested in being reconciled than you are being right in your relationships? Are you a person that someone could look at your life and say, boy, they're growing deeper in the Word of God? Or are you just becoming an older Christian? Are you a person that someone would look at your life and say, I don't know what they have, but whatever's inside of them is producing incredible gratitude in their life. The most grateful people I've ever, they're abounding with thanksgiving. That's exactly what God wants for this church. Corporately. That's exactly what God wants for your life, personally. Hey guys, let's just do this. Let's just commit ourselves to being a church whose sole effort is not to become the next megachurch, whose sole effort 
is to make the name of Jesus Christ famous in this area. Let's just be a soul church whose sole motivation is that the glory of God would be manifest in our church. And let's leave all the attendance stuff in His hands. And if we do those things, I don't think we'll ever get to the place where we'll be able to say with 100%, we're there, we've arrived. But if we do those things, and that's our heart, then guess what? We're going in the right direction. And let's make sure that everything we do at Liberty Heights Church... Let's make sure that everything that we do for the glory of God and never for the applause of men. When we do that, we won't be there. But hear me, we're on the right track. Amen? Let's pray together this morning.